today I want to start a series of, of messages looking at several things in the Gospel of John. We talked a lot about John last week because that's where we looked at, at our, our um, idea of Thomas and doubt and resurrection and all that sort of thing. But for the next several weeks I want to talk about, well, any guesses? Oh, what a cool church, it's a Sunday school answer. I want to talk about Jesus. What a concept, what an idea. Remarkable thing. Really, I think it's fair to say that more has been written about him than anybody else in history. And opinions about who he is vary run the entire gamut. But but there's something about who Jesus is, there's something even about the name Jesus elicits a response. I was listening to Greg Laurie a while back. One of my favorite lines that he gave about Jesus was the fact that we should know there's power in the name of Jesus. How do we know that? Because his name is used when somebody's upset. They hit their thumb with a hammer. What do they say? Harry, Krishna? Nope. You know, they stub their toe, the prophet Muhammad? Nope. What do they say? Jesus Christ. Why? I wonder why that would be the case, but it is. Have you heard about the Jesus Seminar? Does anybody know what the Jesus Seminar is? Okay, this is a general thing. Let me tell you about the Jesus Seminar. Yeah, there you go, gold star. Jesus Seminar is a group of scholars. Um, you can apply to be a part of it. If you want to be like recognized as a scholar, you have to have a Ph.D. in biblical studies or theology or whatever, but you can apply as a fellow that doesn't have that particular designation. And they have taken it upon themselves, remarkable group of people, to decide that when you open your Bible and you read those words that are printed in red in a lot of Bibles, which are the ones that purport to be from the mouth of Jesus, they study and vote as to whether that is really what Jesus said. This is how they vote. They have four, I guess you'd call them marbles, and they're different colors. There's a red marble, a pink marble, a gray marble, and a black marble. And they range from red, meaning absolutely he said that, to black, meaning there's no way he said that. Either somebody later added it to Scripture or whatever else. And so they they have a, a saying of Jesus, and they throw it out. And there's great debate and discussion. At the end of the discussion, they pass around uh, basically a bag or some container, and everybody there that has a vote puts their marble in there. A red marble, you say, absolutely said it, that's worth three points. Isn't that exciting? A pink marble, sort of sounds like him, but we're not sure if he actually said it, that's worth two points. A gray marble, if you put that in the bag or the container, well, gray marble, we really don't think he did. Maybe it's something like it. Worth one point. Black marble in the bag. No way, Jose. That's what you probably think. And that's worth zero points. And they added up. These are professors. They're like GPAs, I guess. And if his GPA is, I think it's like 2.25 or above on a scale of zero to three marble colors, Jesus must have said that. Don't you feel better knowing those scholars voting on what Jesus said? Amen. Remarkable, isn't it? And I'm sure people have names for it. I kind of like to think of it as the arrogance of modern science. That we think we're so much smarter than anybody who's ever lived that we, 2,000 years later, can somehow discern 
what Jesus actually said, because those fools back in Bible times, they didn't really care whether Jesus said it or not. They just wanted to make themselves look good. I, I don't know why we do this. Anyway, that's another story for another day. That's what we do. Is Jesus has been studied. He's been combed over. He's been reduced to all sorts of things. And what I think would be helpful for us for the next several weeks is rather than talk about what people say about Jesus, what did Jesus say about himself? When Jesus had moments with his closest followers, or sometimes with large crowds of people, he said very specific and pointed things about who he was. In the Gospel of John, they're called the I am statements of Jesus. Seven times Jesus says, I am something. And so we're going to look at several of these over the next few weeks. Today we're going to look at the one that he speaks in John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. There are some tucked uh, in the, on the racks on the seats you're sitting in. We're also going to throw most of the verses up here on the screens as we go along. John chapter 11. In the midst of John 11, we're going to find Jesus make one of these I am statements that shows us a little bit about who he is revealing himself to be. See, one of the things that I believe about God is that God is a God who likes to reveal himself. God doesn't want to stay hidden. God doesn't try to keep himself at a distance from humanity. In fact, if we go through the history of God's activity with mankind as recorded in Scripture, we see God is about the process of showing more and more of himself. And ultimately and fully, that revelation comes to its highest point in the person of Jesus. And so we see in these statements important things about God as Jesus reveals himself. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. Now this is a, some people say these three individuals, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, may have been Jesus' closest friends on earth outside of his disciples. He finds himself in their home from time to time. He would go there. He would do lots of things with them. They were near the city of Jerusalem, close by. So whenever he went maybe for one of the holidays or the high holy days to go to the holy city, that would be a natural resting place for him to stop. And so he gets news about them that one of these very close associates or friends of Jesus was sick. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, what they call Lazarus, the one you love is sick. That's pretty potent stuff, isn't it? Lord, we've got some bad news. Somebody that you love is sick. Life is full of bad news, isn't it? Well, except when it's Maybe it's about a relationship that's strained. Maybe it's you get a call from the principal of your children's school and the, the message isn't, oh, guess what? He's on the honor roll. Something else just has been problem. We get bad news all the time. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus got some bad news. And these very close friends of his want him to know, hey, listen, we've got some bad news. Why would they tell him? friends of Jesus, wouldn't you tell them they're getting bad bad news? Because they believed, as we'll see in the story, 
He could do something about it. He could change the circumstances they were facing. But notice verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That, in many ways, is the theme of everything that follows. If you're familiar with this story, maybe you know what happens to Lazarus. Maybe you know what happens next. Maybe you know the miracle that's coming. But as we look at this, I don't want you to forget verse 4. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus tells those disciples with him, when he hears this news, there's something big that's happening here. There is more to this story than you know. There's more than just somebody that we love is sick. The stakes are immeasurably higher. Verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Wouldn't you like to have that written with your name in there? As cool as that would be. Jesus loved Notice what happens next. Jesus loved them. But what did he do? Yet, or so, or therefore, or because he loved them, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Hello. What? So, so wait a minute. I, I'm trying to get this, Jesus. You, you love me, right? Yes, Jesus. the problem I have. Yes, I can. And you're going to do what? I'm going to do nothing. Well, that's not very nice, is it? It's not very nice. You heard he was sick. Jesus was the one who spoke, who touched, who healed. And Mary and Martha sent word, thinking this one who was the healer would come, would show up and fix the problem with their brother's sickness. And yet Jesus, because he loved them, didn't go. Now here's my my assumption. I think this is an incredible two verses here. I think it's one in our world we need to hear. Because here's my thought. What too often in our world, in our culture, is viewed of as love is actually not God's definition of love. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And he demonstrated that love in a really odd way. He waited. Why did he wait? Because he wanted what was absolutely best for Mary and Martha. And the only way he could get to what was the very best thing for those three individuals, and maybe more particularly for the sick one, Lazarus, was to wait. To not just rush out and fix it right away, but rather to lay back and let the circumstances unfold. See, I think when we talk about how God loves us, 
what we need to understand about God's love is God's love is the kind of love that gives us exactly what we need, whether we realize it or not. If you were to ask Mary or Martha in this situation, how could Jesus best show love for you? Do you think they would have said, the way he could best show love for me is to get on his horse or camel or donkey or llama or alpaca or however he got there, put his sandals on, lace them up, and run here and fix the problem. They would have probably thought that is absolutely the A number one way Jesus could show love. Now, if we believe, which I do, that Jesus is the Son of God, He's God incarnate, and He always acts perfectly in love, Mary and Martha's definition or understanding of what God's love should look like is diametrically opposed to what Jesus actually did and therefore what God's love is actually about. I hope that makes sense to you. Let me bring it to a different place. How many of you have ever had children or cared for children or babysat children or in any way had the responsibility of a child under your care? Raise your hand up high. When said child asks you for something, do you, in fact, every time and immediately do exactly what that child asks for? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone at all? Okay, one. We'll pray for you. For the most part, we have an understanding because of our age and maturity that sometimes what our children or the person the child that we're responsible for, ask for, may not be for the best. And so we act in ways, because of our understanding, because of our knowledge, our wisdom, our experience, is in fact for the best. And in the moment, that child may not understand our actions. I think in our world, we've got this weird view of the love of God. We've got this weird idea, and some of it comes from popular theology, prosperity theology, that God wants you healthy and wealthy, that God will bless you, and He exists to make you happy. That that's what God is out there for. And if you just believe the right way, or, or act the right way, or have enough faith, or whatever the, the phrase or the mantra might be this weekend, then you're going to experience all these wonderful things. Did God love Jesus? Do we agree on that? God loved Jesus. Did Jesus ever have trouble? A little bit. A little bit. Did God love the Apostle Paul? Paul, who persecuted the church, then met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then was the one responsible for spreading the gospel to the Gentile nations and starting so many churches and pinning 13 of the 27 books of what we call the New Testament. Do you think God loved the Apostle Paul? Read his biography. I was shipwrecked. I was beaten. I was, this bad thing happened. I was in prison. There was, I mean, you think, wow, what kind of love is that? Well, it's the kind of love that God has for everybody, that God has for Mary and Martha, that God has for Jesus, that God has for Paul, that God has for you and I, that he sees the bigger picture. And when he acts in our lives, His love is always expressed in the way that will bring about the greatest good. Now, we live in a world 
not just in Christian theology where that's sort of a little bit off, but in popular culture, that's a little bit off. People think that, and maybe it's, you've experienced this when you have conversations with people, maybe you take a stand on a moral issue, and, and we're told as Christians that that's just not very loving to feel that. As if what love means is whatever I want to do, you should be okay with and support me in no matter what. Even though in the most precious relationships we have, those with our kids, often when they want something, we say no. Why? Because we understand sometimes love isn't just this carte blanche, I'll do whatever you want, and no matter what you want is fine with me. No, it's having the courage to look somebody in the eye and say, here's here's love, what you're doing ultimately will hurt you, and I'm not as much as I can, going to let you make those choices. I'm going to stand between you and those choices. I'm going to I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you through them. But ultimately, I know you're going down the wrong path. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to confront somebody as they're making horrible, life-changing, life-harming choices. That's the kind of love God would have for us. It's the kind of love that we see Jesus demonstrate when he came across people. Did he ever confront people? That's what you think of. Answer. I mean, I know some of you are nodding, and I can hear that a little bit. He confronted lots of people. And even, maybe you thought, but what about those those tax collectors and sinners? He just loved, 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 loved them. Yes, you know what he said? The woman caught in adultery? Go and sin no going to condemn you, but I'm going to tell you the choices you're making are not for the best, so leave that way of living and follow my way. Jesus wasn't shy. His, his message of love didn't mean do whatever you want and I'll love you anyway. It was, I love you enough sometimes that I'll tell you the truth about the way you're going. I love you enough that sometimes I won't give you what you want because I know there's something bigger and better waiting for you. So he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And because he loved them, he waited to do anything. He knew there was something better. What was that something better? Well, we just looked at it a few verses before. That he was about the glory of God. His sickness will not end in death, nor will be God's glory That's what Jesus' agenda. And he acted in a loving way, even though maybe we not, might not get that at first. It says it very clearly in the text. He acted in a loving way. Well, the text goes on and he talks to his disciples and he's going to go there. And, and he has some interesting things to say to them. Um, he says in verse 7, Let us go back to Judea. Makes sense. He's going to go back there. The reason they're going back there, though, is a little iffy. Not just Mary, Martha. But the last time they were there, in fact, in John chapter 10, when he was there, guess what almost happened to Jesus? They tried to kill him. John chapter 10, the chapter before, they're going to kill him. He says to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And they said, look, they tried to stone you. And then my my hero, not my hero, but my favorite disciple speaks up, Thomas. How many of you like Thomas better now than you did? 
all the disciples are thinking, this is not going to end well. Verse 16, then Thomas called Didymus. By the way, Didymus doesn't mean doubter. I actually heard two sermons and read another article about this passage that said all through Scripture, Thomas is called the doubter. Really? I must have missed that. I thought Didymus meant twin. I didn't think it meant doubter. But that's kind of like what we think about Thomas, the doubter. Uh, which, which is amazing we have to say this guy. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, can you believe Thomas said this? In fact, you didn't know Thomas said this. You thought Thomas was the doubter. You thought Thomas was the weakest link. Goodbye. He's not. Look what he says. Let us also go. If Jesus is going, we're going too. That we may die with him. Does that have taken full of doubt? Really a sellout Jesus is certainly somebody who's terribly committed to Jesus. And if that's what it takes to see the kingdom of God come, then let's do it. This is what we have to do for these people we love. Let's go. So, okay, there's the emergency sign for that. Let's go. On his arrival, Jesus found, verse 17, that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. How long? Four days. Why is that important? I'm so glad you asked. Did you know popular culture in that day believed that after a person died, their spirit hovered around the body for three days. Not biblical. You're not going to find chapter and verse. Not a Christian way of looking at it. But that was sort of how they looked at death. That for three days, the spirit sort of hung around the body. And so Jesus shows up, not on day one, when the spirit would still be hanging around. Not on day two or three, when they thought the spirit would be hanging around. He shows up on day four, which means in their mind, this was hopeless. To quote, Did y'all not see that movie? Who saw The Princess Bride? Mostly good? Two blades. Yes? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Anyone else? Shall I go on? That's the bad part, right? Four days, which means in their mind, this was hopeless. There was nothing that could be undone that had already been done. If Jesus would have just been here, in fact, this is what... They, they tell him, verse, verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you would have just been here, if you would have showed up, if you would have come with all In fact, a little bit later, Mary comes out, and guess what she says? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were certain that if Jesus just showed up, he could have fixed the problem. And he could have. them so much. He loved them enough. He loved them in a way that he waited. He delayed so that when he showed up, they could know something more than they had ever known about Lazarus. And by the way, that's pretty incredible. It's hugely significant in this story and in every part of Scripture. Because, see, what, what we have to remember, you know, John 3.16, you know John 3.16? Say it with me. For God God so loved the world. And they gave, how long are we going to do 
you say in words, we all know. I mean, that's how you say it, right? That's how people say, you know the verse. For God so loved the world. And we love that, that, that he gave his son. Now, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. All in favor of eternal life, say, I. I. Do you know what eternal life is? Here's an idea. What does Jesus say eternal life is? John 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life. You know what it doesn't say? That you may go to heaven and walk on streets of gold. It doesn't say, this is eternal life. That you have a mansion in glory in the sweet by and by. Now that's part of our hope. But Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and your Son whom you have sent. What is eternal life in the definition of Jesus? Knowing God and knowing His Son. That's eternal life. When God came demonstrate his love for the world. And God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. His ultimate goal wasn't simply to get you to heaven. His ultimate goal was to restore a relationship with you that you might know him. And that knowledge, that knowing him would go through all eternity. Another place I think that's pretty important. Another verse is John 14, verse 21. He refers about being loved by God. What does it mean to be loved by God? This is what Jesus says. He who loves me is loved by my Father. And I love him, and listen to this, and I will show myself to him. Jesus says, I will love you, and one of the ways I will love you is by revealing more of myself to you. Anybody here in love? Should I give you honey? Would you feed me? Would you sit upon him a bun? Are you with him today? Three of you just got closer because you wanted to prove it. Somebody in the back is doing the whole stretch out and around them thing. I don't even know what that's about. Right? You, you, you love somebody. And you know when you start out in a relationship and you first meet, you want to make sure you put your best foot forward, right? I mean, you do things like wear deodorant every time you go see them. Don't you? You like brush your teeth. You got the, the breath mints in your pocket or in your car. And, and between the time you leave your house and the time you pick them up for the gate, you've gone like through a whole 10 hours of that. Because you want to make sure the breath is fresh. You, you shave and you shower more regularly. Thank God for love, right? Amen. No. I mean, you put your best foot forward. You may be the shortest tempered person in the world. But when you're in love, you are so polite. You may be the cheapest person in the world, but when you're in love, you buy $75 flowers on Valentine's Day. Because, you know, you're in love. You put that best foot forward. You notice how, as part of the relationship, one of the dynamics of the relationship, one of the things that takes a relationship from that sort of puppy love-ish stage where everything's sunshine and roses to maybe a, a longer-term commitment is you're willing to show more of who you really are. You open up about your your real self. They see glimpses. Maybe it's because you're just more comfortable with yourself. And you let down your guard a little bit. Maybe at first you, you talk about happy things, but as you've been together a while, the sad things, the frustrating things come up. That person becomes a confidant. And you share things with them. You get encouragement from them in ways that you didn't on your first date. 
part of the process of that love growing is a opening up of yourself to the other person so that they see more and more of who you are. And Scripture says that is God's desire in our relationship with Him. That His response of love to us as we love Him is that He will show us more of Himself. There's something else He wants to show us. There's a deeper part of who He is. And that only comes through this process of relationship. As He says, I will love Him and I will show myself to Him. And for Mary and Martha, He had more to show them. See, they knew Him as healer. They had seen Him heal. They had heard the, the stories of people that were blind or lame or deaf that Jesus had come into contact with and spoken or touched and they were they were made whole. They knew that. And Jesus could have. It was within His power to speak the Word, to go there and to, to heal Lazarus completely. But He chose not to. Not because He didn't love them, but because He wanted them to know Him on a deeper level. He wanted to manifest as part of himself to them they hadn't ever experienced before. And so he shows up on the fourth day when all hope is lost, when there's no anything that they're thinking might be possible to be reversed. Now Jesus shows up. In, in verse, verse 20 and 21, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and meets him. Him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, she said, we just read this. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then you notice verse 22. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I know that even now. What does even now mean? It, it means as I look at the situation and as I think about all the things that have happened because you waited, even now it's not too late for you to do something. Even now. God will give you whatever it is you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's a good Sunday school answer, isn't it? She's giving her a little clue. Your brother will rise again. He goes, yes, I took that in third grade. I understand as a good religious person that one day, she probably maybe even sang sweet by and by to him. And sweet by and by, they meet on that beautiful stage, just like we do. It's a beautiful thing, as long as the song is sweet. That's not Jesus' message here, is it? Jesus says, here's the I am statement. Here's where Jesus shows a little bit about himself. Here's where Jesus says, I love you so much, I want to show you a part of me you didn't know before. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You might know me as healer, but I'm more than that. And I love you enough that in this instance, I'm going to show you I am more than that. I'm not just healer. I am resurrection and life. Resurrection. What is that? We know it from Jesus from Easter, right? Someone that's dead and comes back to life. We know in the physical world that rare exceptions we see in Scripture. Maybe you've seen something that looks similar. Medical science, maybe even we could say how those who, who have uh, very serious illnesses, heart attacks, might might have uh, you know, no heartbeat for a while or, or not be breathing. Somehow they can come back even from those and their stories of what they've seen. They've seen light or they've heard this or whatever. 
fascinating stories. But for Jesus, this is more than that. This is not about just taking breath and having a heart that's kind of brainless. Jesus is not talking about your brother's dead and now he's going to come back to life, which happens, which is remarkable. But what is at issue here is who Jesus is and what he wants to reveal in himself. Notice he doesn't say, I do resurrect you. That's a business. Hi, my name is Jesus and I do resurrect you. Call me. Call me. Call me. That's not evil. It's something I do. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is who I mean when we think about God, the eternal God of the universe who reveals himself to us in Scripture. In him is life. There was nothing, and he speaks everything into existence. He is the, the author and giver of life, we know from elsewhere in Scripture. There's something about God and life that are intimately tied together and no matter how far science has advanced, there's one piece that they quite can't get and that's how to take something that's not life and make it life. God can do that. God does that all the time in miraculous ways and Jesus says to Mary and to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, Lord, she told him, verse 27, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Notice he doesn't go straight to Lazarus. He's like, all right, you're the resurrection. Let's go see my brother. No, she understands that in that moment, Jesus is giving her a very precious gift. He's giving her a little bit more of himself, another part of his character and his nature to see, and she recognizes it. and says, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, and all that that meant for her. And after she said that, she went back and got Mary and returned a little bit later. We have Jesus saying, verse 35, And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had also come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, 35 says, Jesus wept. Remarkable verse. A lot we could talk about, but we're going to move on. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Could he not have opened the eyes? Could he who opened the eyes of the blind man not have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. That's not easy, isn't it? Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, I like this King James, he thinketh in four days. You know, he can't beat that, can he? By this time, there is a bad odor. Now, I just want to ask you some serious things. By this time, he thinks he's been in there four days, and Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see what? The glory of God. This is what it's about. This is the ultimate goal of all of this account, that Jesus is showing Mary and Martha and even Lazarus a little more of himself. And, and, and here's what we have to come to grips with. The thing that is the absolute best for you and I in any circumstance is that phrase, the glory of God. There's nothing greater than when we, with our human and sinful eyes, get to see a glimpse of the true glory and goodness of our God. And Jesus, in this account, shows to these grieving sisters who are heartbroken, think 
thinking they knew the answer to their problem, but being now devastated by the fact their brother is dead, he says, I have just something to give you. I want to show you what ultimately will make your heart happier than anything else, what ultimately is more important to you than even your brother coming back to life, the very glory of the eternal God of salvation and happiness. So they took away the stone. Jesus prays, verse 43, when, they had said, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. I love this. We did this play at, when I was a kid at my church. And I thought it was fantastic. I wish I had a video of it, but I don't think they had video. They had people in there doing it. And I don't, they had those, you know, those, remember videotapes? That's what, I, it may be recorded on that. So our kids are there, and one of them, I don't remember who played Jesus, uh, got up and said, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus said, okay, and walked out. It was hysterical, all wrapped up. I don't know why I remember that, but I remember that tremendously. But you know, that's a good thing. When Jesus calls you by name, you know what the right answer is? Okay! Good answer! Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes says in this account that, that they had many from the town had come and were there as mourners. Even in, in some situations, they would hire mourners to come to mourn depending on the, the wealth of the family and the importance of the person who passed away. They would hire people to come and cry for their, their beloved just to kind of make I guess the production really big. I don't know if that's what's happening here but we have this, this scene of people dressed in black and mourning and now standing outside a grave and here comes the man dead, the one who sent this, who's been in there four days, walking out. This is a party. Something has changed here. What has changed? Well, it goes back to what we've said at least two or three times already. They saw the glory of God. They, they went from knowing Jesus as healer to knowing him for what he called him for, as the resurrection and the life. Absolutely. I'm glad that part of what this means is that one day, all those people that I love that died as believers, I get to see them again. Whether it's my father and grandfather and grandmother and great-grandfather, these people that I knew and spent time at their houses and, and who, uh, you know, my, my granny and my granddaddy practically raised me. My parents were working as much as they were, and so I can't wait to see them again. I remember so much about my grandfather sort of my hero, and he taught me a lot about how to use a, a lawnmower, and about how to do things at, at a service station, and how to, you know, work on cars. Not that I do it very much, but he showed me a few tricks and tips. Like, that was the best thing. I could go to the, the station with Granddaddy. That was an awesome treat that day. Sometimes he'd even let me pump gas. It was remarkable. And that was when, you know, you, remember the old, the old pump? Now you just push a button and squeeze, and you used to have to turn a dial and pull something down and reset the thing and, you know, you had to go inside to pay. Old school on pumps. You know, it was all full service. You know, they're pumping your gas, they're washing your windows, they're checking your oil. Anybody? Okay, just checking. I remember those days. And I remember 
that, that it was the best thing when he said that morning, you're coming with me, Charles, and he gave his statement. And if I was really lucky, I got to pick out a candy bar. I bet that's if I didn't visit Dave Jackson or whatever I took him to. And one day, the fact that Jesus says, I am the resurrection, means I'm going to see him again. I'm going to spend all of eternity with him. And you probably have those people, too, that you're looking forward one day to seeing again. But, but this account didn't happen to simply point to that one day. I think the message that Jesus would have for Mary and Martha is, even today, even now, I am the resurrection and the life. See, what we know from Scripture is when sin comes in, death follows. It inevitably happens. They eat of the fruit, they will surely die. And then they ate, they were kicked out of the garden, and their bodies began to repair it. One day they did. Many, many years later, yes, but one day they did. But it's not just physical death. We know when sin comes in, other death happens. If you're in a relationship and there's betrayal, it's like a death happened in that relationship. You need resurrection. You need the resurrection and the life to step into that relationship and say, come forth, don't you? You need to hear those words. Maybe it's, it's not, not even that. Maybe it is like this started. There's a diagnosis. There's a, a medical something. I'm glad that ultimately we serve a God who is the resurrection and the life, who is the healer, and who can bring healing. But I'm also glad that in whatever the situation, even if the outcome isn't what we hoped, that ultimately we learn from this passage what the bigger picture is. The glory of God. And I don't know what you're facing today. And I can't promise that the miraculous is going to happen. But I can say, because of the God we serve and because of who Jesus is, ultimately, whatever you go through can be for the glory of God. And at the end of the day, you may see Him differently than you've ever seen Him before. You know, I think about those disciples as they gathered in the upper room. They were doing something they'd done before. They were taking Passover together. This was normal. This was natural. They didn't think anything about it. It was their faith. It was their heritage. This time of year, they would go to the city and they would take this celebratory meal together. They didn't know what was happening on that particular night when Jesus instructed them to go and find the place and prepare the room. And they didn't know when they got in that room and sat around the table and were worried about things like dirty feet. And while they had a little bit of an argument about it, I don't think they really knew what was at stake when it was Jesus himself who took the basin and washed the feet of those disciples. And as the supper unfolded, I don't know if it felt any different than any other Passover meal they'd taken together until that one moment when Jesus changed the script. See, there's a script for the Passover meal. If you've ever been to a Seder, there's a script. You have it in front of you, usually, if you've been to one at somebody's home or in a larger group. And, and you go through the script, the different things that are on the table, whether it be the, 
the plate in the, the Seder plate in the middle or the matzah and the bread or whatever. There's certain prayers that you pray at certain times of the meal and everything is explained, whether you're remembering the twelve or excuse me, the ten plagues or whether you're remembering something else. Everything has a place and there's always a script. But on that night Jesus went off the script. When he took bread and broke it and said, This is If they hadn't paid attention before, I bet they started paying attention then. Wait a minute, what did he say? Did, did, did he say what I think he said? I thought this was the bread that reminded us of Egypt, that we didn't have time to let it rise, and so it's, it's, a, it's something we take every year as, as a, remember, a memorial of that event. What did he say? This is my body? And a little later... When they came to the cup, most people think it was the third of the four cups of the Passover Seder. And he took it and he changed the script again. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. What? Is the new covenant? Yeah, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whoa, 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 time out. This cup, the idea of blood, we know. The Passover lamb... In Egypt, the one that we kill as part of this memorial, the one that we, the ones that we kill regularly at the temple as a sacrifice for sin, we understand how this works. What do you mean? New covenant in your blood, Jesus. That's not what we're supposed to say. And what's this whole new covenant thing? Oh, wait. Jeremiah, new covenant. Could he be talking about that? The new covenant written not on tablets of stone, but on a heart? Could, could he, you think? And in that moment, by just changing a few words, familiar words that they all knew, everything changed. I don't think they were ready for what came next. But ultimately, you know what he was up to. The same thing he was up to that we saw a couple times in this story. The glory of God. I don't know if the disciples felt much glory of God when he was arrested or when they at a distance sort of watched the trial and the beatings and all that went on or, or when they hung back as they made him carry his cross to the place he would be nailed to it. It didn't look like much glory then. And I don't know if any of them remembered this moment in this house when Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I gotta believe three days later they remember it. John starts his gospel. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full 